welcome to the gamesindustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Ballantyne, and this week I'm joined by... Brendan Sinclair. Hayden Taylor. We'll be discussing some of the latest industry headlines. Here's what's been happening this week. Nintendo has entered the VR space with a new Labo kit that sees Switch owners building cardboard virtual reality goggles. Crowd publishing platform Brightlocker has been dissolved, but will live on under the guidance of a holding company independent from CEO Ruben Cortez. The revelation came amid claims that developers were not being paid the money they were owed. Vivendi has sold off the last of its shares in Ubisoft, thus ending its takeover bid, but it doesn't go away empty-handed. It ultimately gained 1.2 billion euros in its attempt to acquire the Assassin's Creed publisher. Night in the Woods co-creators Scott Benson and Bethany Hockenberry, along with artist and musician Ren Farron, have formed a new game studio, The Glory Society. The venture is a worker cooperative where everyone at the studio is a co-owner and all make decisions as equals. No bosses needed. THQ Nordic CEO Lars Wingefors has apologized for the decision by its subsidiary, also called THQ Nordic, to host a Q&A on 8chan. He took full responsibility for the team's actions, saying that even if no one within the THQ Nordic group would ever endorse such content, I realized simply appearing there gave an implicit impression that we did. Sony has confirmed the final shipments of PlayStation Vita have been completed in Japan, ending production for the handheld and, so far, the platform holder's plans for portable consoles. And Valve has pulled a controversial rape fantasy game from Steam. Rape Day was a visual novel that gave players the ability to choose the actions of a serial rapist during the zombie apocalypse. Valve has previously said it was allowing anything on its store that isn't illegal or trolling, but, after widespread complaints over this title, has added a third reason for banning a title, saying that Rape Day poses unknown costs and risks and therefore won't be on Steam. So let's start today by taking a look at the Glory Society. Um, that's Again, that's Scott Benson and Bethany Hockenberry. Uh, those two were two of, I think, three co-creators on Night in the Woods. And then they're joined by artist and musician Ren Farron. Um, and they have created this worker cooperative that where everyone in the studio is an equal and there are no bosses needed. Um, currently, it's just the three of them. Um, they're working on at least two unannounced titles so far. And they have said that they plan on expanding the studio at some point in the future, hiring some more people. So I guess the model is going to scale with them as they get bigger. What do you guys think about that? I think it's an interesting uh, approach to game development. I am uh, typically quite skeptical of the uh, the flat hierarchy and the no bosses setup. Um, you may notice my skepticism with Valve at, at various points. <laughs> Um, but, uh, like, I, I think it's, it's wonderful that they are, uh, attempting to, to kind of create a new model for, for, for game development. And, uh, I have, um, a lot more faith, faith in Scott and Bethany and the approach that they are, uh, coming to this from than, than I do with a company like Valve. Valve's... Valve's not a worker cooperative, though, is it? So does Valve claim no. to have a flat hierarchy? I, I guess I they missed do. that. They, oh, they do? They very much claim that uh, they are they are not a boss-driven company and that you, you kind of do whatever you want. And it's, you know, people that used to work at Valve have, you know, said, like, yeah, yeah, kind of, but there's all these, you know, internal politics and, and cliques and unspoken hierarchies and... I mean, obviously, Gabe is still Gabe Newell, the you know the head of the company. 
Um, so like three people, uh, working in a cooperative co-owning sense, like, sure. I don't see why that wouldn't work. Um, whatever they do, is it, is it scalable and how much is it scalable is uh, kind of an interesting question. I think. I think it's like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm like you, Brandon, I'm quite cynical about this. Um, but I think like if you look at any kind of group of people of, you know, even like seven or eight people, you always end up with one or two sort of more like rogue elements in there, I think, um, in like social circles, in work, kind of anywhere. Um, so I'm kind of skeptical to see how, as it gets beyond just kind of like the initial three, maybe up to like 10, how it really start how it how it actually kind of balances out and because you know ultimately they're, they're still trying to make a game and they still have timelines and budgets and you know like an audience to serve so how how do you how do you actually do it without just someone you know having to make those tough decisions occasionally it's funny you specify the number 10 hayden because the thing that i learned the other day when i was researching this story is that apparently motion twin the dead cells developer is also a cooperative it's the same model and motion twin i guess they they talked to scott and bethany and ren a lot when they were working on this and uh, motion twin says that the ideal number for this sort of thing is something like 11 to 15 i guess um, I don't. Okay. I don't know many more details than that, but I thought I, I did not realize that that was how Motion Twin operated, and they made a pretty dang good game. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that definitely gives me a little bit more faith in the idea. And like eleven to fifteen, I, I'm a little bit surprised at that, honestly. But again, cynical. Um, but also, it's it's not like a completely unreasonable number, you know. Like when you start approaching to the size, because that's still that's a still a small studio, right? And when you start approaching mid size. And you start needing things like a HR manager, for example, just because there's a lot of people and you need someone to manage those people to make sure that they have, you know, their paychecks and their insurance or whatever else it is that they might need. It becomes like there just becomes a natural sort of um, there, there is someone starts holding a natural amount of power just through the privilege of what it is they do within the company. Um, so as companies get bigger and start requiring more people to manage the more law sort of ex extraneous tasks yeah people, I, I guess like you like like you were saying with valve like cliques develop and i imagine that happens as a product of being like well over here in finance we do this and they sort of probably think like because we do the finance and we bring in the money through whatever means we have a certain sort of place within the company that is perhaps above everyone else as soon as you are big enough that someone on your staff needs to sit through a compliance training session, it's about an hour long, <laughs> you absolutely need a boss to tell them they have to do that because that is not oh, yeah. getting done otherwise. God, no. Oh, no. So, I mean, I've, I've got a compliance training session sat in my inbox waiting for me to do, and that's even with a boss telling me to do it. So. <laughs> we need to make sure you're not bribing any international governments hayden <laughs> that's right <laughs> well that was a cautiously optimistic story to start the week with but unfortunately we had a share of not so optimistic news um throughout the week uh one of those was uh from thq nordic we talked about it last week on the podcast uh they held an ama and ask me anything session on 8chan and this week uh lars wingafors the ceo of 
THQ Nordic, the parent company, not THQ Nordic, the one that did the AMA, uh, took full responsibility for the team's actions and um, apologized for it. Um, but I, I mean, I kind of know where we're going with this. Was it, was it enough, gentlemen? Absolutely not. And the, the, my first sort of, the first thing about that apology that is immediately the most galling about it is that he says he takes full responsibility, which is, you know, fine. Um, personally, I think like the people involved should be taking responsibility as well. But it's like, what does taking responsibility look like? Standing up and saying, I am responsible for what happened is not really taking responsibility. It's sort of accepting blame and being like, oh, you know, it was my fault. But it's not really taking responsibility in a way that, because, you know, taking responsibility is like doing something wrong or objectionable and then kind of putting measures in place to ensure that that doesn't happen again because now, like, you are responsible for what happened and so it's up to you to ensure it doesn't happen. And, like, maybe they're doing stuff internally, but I just think standing up and saying, oh, you know, I'm responsible for what happened, it just... It feels like every single cookie-cutter apology for every single thing that has ever happened. Yeah, it's it's pretty um, pretty toothless. Uh, I mean, he's he's not really getting into any sort of explanation as to the process failures that allowed this to happen in the first place. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's there's no. Uh, repercussions for the PR manager who thought it would be a good public relations exercise to buddy up with 8chan and whether that's you know like uh, him being fired or suspended or we're going to make him like undergo some kind of training to kind of straighten this out like there just doesn't appear to be any kind of um, consequences to to what's happened and and that's a little frustrating uh Mm. all all in all like that that apology that statement like we've seen we've seen worse statements like even since (laughs) that one was given (laughs) which we'll get to yeah that's true (laughs) um but it 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 wasn't exactly like wow you know that that that's someone who gets it and i totally you know, I, I think I have faith in the company to kind of, you know, learn from this and and repair its uh, reputation going forward. Like that was that was much more of a statement that's like, eh, OK, well, they I guess they've done the bare minimum. And like the, the thing about a statement like that as well is that I think they probably learned not to not to go on 8chan again. <laughs> that's the thing that. That's the thing that they've learned, but I don't think they've taken any kind of wider lesson yeah. from this. So, so how about Stormfront? Are statement. you going on Stormfront next? Ooh. Yeah, Did exactly. Like, or <laughs> they were so nice when they asked us. And like, they were wearing these really nice white hoods. Oh, um, like, sorry, that's maybe. It's <laughs> just dead Stormfront. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, don't, I just don't think they've taken any, like, any actual lesson from right. this, a wider lesson. It's, it's They've learned about HM, but have they really learned anything about kind of how they present themselves, how they engage with different communities or anything like that? I think they've just kind of learned to like be more careful around HM, and that's basically it. They're really. sorry because they got in trouble. They're not sorry because they actually think they did something wrong. Um, that, is, that is 100%. Yeah. It, kind yeah. of to bounce off what Brendan said. Yeah, there doesn't 
they say they are conducting an internal investigation and, you know, taking appropriate action to make sure that this doesn't happen again or whatever. But it's so vague and it... It... it it feels more like, to, to compare it to something else that isn't on the list of news that we read. Um, last week, we didn't report on it, Riot, um, or last week or the week before, Riot came around and said, oh, look, here's a bunch of things we put on our website to say that we're increasing, you know, we're, we're trying to improve diversity, we're trying to improve our culture, all these things. And I went to the website to look at them, and they're all just very hollow statements like, Yes, we believe in diversity. We believe in having a good culture. You know, all these just really kind of vague things. But there was nothing about the actual concrete action they were doing um, to make sure that something like this wasn't going to happen again. And that's kind of what I see in the statement. Saying, we will take appropriate action to make sure this doesn't happen again and leaving it there is something you say when, like, I don't know, someone got wrongfully banned in a video game and you need to, like reinstate them like say oh there was a mistake that happened here we'll fix it next time like that that's that kind of statement this they they just they don't show that they have any idea of the gravity of this or care yeah no i think i think you're absolutely right and it's like it there's no evidence that you know the people kind of involved at like riot in a particular like toxic culture or anything that's like that's actually being like addressed and i guess i guess it's kind of like they're, they're going to have to do a lot to really, really kind of actually change the work culture because that is going to be so ingrained. So how do you, I guess, communicate that without kind of overwhelming, like saying like, well, we had to, we spoke to this individual employee about this and this is like, I, I, I'm not sure how you present that information without it kind of being too much, but also it just feels, again, like toothless is, is definitely the right word for, for kind of Riot's response as well, I think. Last night I was at a, um, a women in games panel here in Toronto that was organized by Ubisoft and uh, Microsoft and uh, Riot's uh, had a diversity and inclusion manager, um, Soha, oh, I don't have her name handy, but um, she was she was talking about she she addressed, you know, for a women in games thing, kind of the the firestorm that they had last year. And she talked about how um, they'd been doing so much to try and improve things, but even when they were working on it before everything erupted with that um, Kotaku uh, expose, uh, they had just kind of taken some things for granted, like the core culture of of the studio and and thinking like, okay, well, we can do this, that, and the other thing. Um, but they just kind of had like assumed that, that some things about the, the studio were so deep, so entrenched in it that, that it didn't really, I guess, um, occur to them that they could actually insist on having those things changed as well. And, uh, since that time she said that, that, you know, they've realized like, no, 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 that's, that stuff's not good. And we actually, we, we really can work to, to change it. Um, I've, I've spoken with a few people, uh, at, at Riot in the last few months, uh, about this. And, and I think there absolutely are people within the company making a, a genuine effort to improve things. I, I, I do think that their messaging to the, to the outside world has been, um, not great. And, uh, my, my personal read on it is that there are still 
entrenched uh people who who are not on board with uh with all of the changes so it's it is a company in a a very um unenviable spot at the moment i think with a very big task ahead of it so i didn't really mean to throw riot under the bus there that time um I really meant to compare their statements to the public about their issues to THQ Nordics. Um, In this case, um, all of these statements being fairly toothless, as Hayden put it, which speaking of toothless statements, they aren't the only ones who have had some lately. Um, Another company actually had a somehow even worse and more toothless statement uh, earlier this week, which I'm going to let Brendan take the lead on that one. But if you're listening, be warned, this section does come with a content warning for sexual violence. Go ahead, Brendan. Okay, so um, uh, last, what, June, July, Valve released their new content policy, and they said the right approach is to allow everything onto the Steam store except for things that we decide are illegal or straight-up trolling. And essentially everyone called them out on this um, very quickly because that, that policy leaves open so much horrible toxic awful stuff and uh we we got that really put to the test in the last couple weeks uh when a developer called desk plant put up a steam store page for a game called rape day it's a visual novel that is about a zombie apocalypse where uh let's see it's billed as a game where you can rape and murder during a zombie apocalypse control the choices of a menacing serial killer rapist during the apocalypse verbally harass kill and rape women as you choose to progress the story the zombies enjoy eating the flesh off warm humans and brutally raping them but you are the most dangerous rapist in town and that description is disturbing enough um but if you actually looked at the the page and the screenshots that it gave and the the trailer for it like it it was a really really awful rotten thing like i i was affected by it after like having to go through that that to write up the story and it was up for like two weeks and then on monday it started to kind of circulate in the press um we we got wind of it from someone in the industry saying like hey have you guys seen this and we asked valve about it this was monday morning eastern time i believe and uh we didn't cover it right away we were sort of hoping like okay well maybe we'll point it out to them and they'll be like oh geez take it down right away and then we don't have to cover it or give it any publicity and it doesn't come out or anything like that um Later that afternoon, uh, we started to see other sites pick it up. Uh, so there was some, you know, publicity of it anyways. Uh, Valve had not gotten back to us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, we ran the uh, editorial, Steam is in the rape fantasy business. Um, and it's kind of weird because we always put like the slash opinion on our editorials. Like that's our format now. And that seemed like a pretty factual headline to me. But, yeah, it did, um, didn't it? <laughs> so we didn't hear from them until uh, Wednesday when they finally, and they didn't tell us, they just kind of released a, a note on their, their website about uh, why 
why Rape Day would not be published on Steam. And uh, they say, much of our policy around what we distribute is and must be reactionary, which is not the word they were looking for, I think. I think they're kind of going for reactive. Mm -hmm. Reactionary is more like, well, it is reaction. It's pretty. I don't think Valve um, knows what words it's looking for, Brendan. <laughs> Uh, we simply have to wait and see what comes to us via Steam Direct. We then have to make a judgment call about any risk it puts to Valve, our developer partners, or our customers. After significant fact-finding and discussion, we think Rape Day poses unknown costs and risks, and therefore won't be on Steam. We respect developers' desire to express themselves, and the purpose of Steam is to help developers find an audience but this developer has chosen content matter and a way of representing it that makes it very difficult for us to help them do that. And so now I'm just kind of like, where to start with that? Um, notice that none of this is based on any sense of morality or values or we don't like rape. Um, they say rape day poses unknown costs and risks and therefore won't be on Steam. Which tells me they were worried about lawsuits or they were worried about business partners refusing to do business with them. Whether that be publishers not wanting to have their games on Steam, uh, which is something that I talked about in the editorial and how that seems like a really bad thing to do when you're already under fire from Discord and Epic and all these others trying to court away your AAA publisher base. Um, or or credit card uh, payment processors not wanting to you know even handle the money for for something like that um, and and then if you if you look at it there's no like this isn't an apology of any way uh, shape or form the closest it gets to an apology is to the developer of the game saying that we respect the developers' desire to express themselves, but this, you know, this guy did something that makes it very difficult for us to help them express themselves. And It definitely read like an apology, not just to the developer, but also to, I don't know, the people who believed that this game should be on Steam because free speech and no censorship, you know, completely... Um, misinterpreting what those things mean and who, you know, is involved in those things. And it's it's appalling and it's it's a pattern of behavior uh, from from Steam at this point where time and again they don't care about this stuff until people raise a big stink about it in the media. And then, you know, they, they look at it for way too long and then they decide, like, oh, well, this, you know, we'll we'll get rid of it because of all the people complaining. While they still try and, like, have this, you know, ultimate free speech support kind of position. And one of the things that's really frustrating is that the, frequently they'll take the stuff that they, they pull and they'll put it back on Steam later. Uh, Hatred, the the game, you know, that was pretty much just a murderous rampage fun times speaking of hatred actually it, it occurred to me as as you were kind of reading off the the policy of like unless it's straight up trolling like hatred was 
built to just basically troll like quote unquote SJWs. Like that's the only reason that game was built was to just be controversial. Right, but so, it, it had some like, production values. It had some production values, sure, but like it, like the Valve's kind of content policy, it just there is how do you decide what is like straight up trolling and how do you decide whether or not, you know, it poses unknown costs and risks, which is like it, it by that definition anything that goes up there they could justify removing or keeping on i, th- I think um, it literally is just the production values because they consider straight up trolling to be like a lazy or very quick low cost thing but if you put effort into your straight up trolling then they're like oh that's... <laughs> that has merit for some reason right. which is terrifying um, because i mean like brennan said I, I you know i was on that steam page you know while we were looking into this story and it's it's horrifying like it's it's really messed up and it is really messed up to like even consider and i certainly don't want to say just but it's kind of the only way to express what i'm saying here it it and this is this is just the visual like a visual novel kind of cheap like not there isn't a production value to this, or at least not much of one. Like, can can you? Im- I I don't want to imagine if they came out with something with production values along the same lines. And in that case, would Valve be fine with that? Like, ah. Yep, yep. Um, other other games that were pulled and are still back on Steam now: Playing History, Slave Trade, the one that had like a Tetris mini game where you had slaves bent and contorted. into the tetris pieces um and house party which was a game where you kind of go into a house party and then uh get women drunk and sleep with them or whatever so that that one's back up because the the you know the the initial pushback on it died down and uh someone someone on on twitter um and like it's it's kind of frustrating because even uh Pornhub and and YouPorn and and pornography sites they they commonly have terms of service specifically prohibiting rape, hate speech, slurs. And Valve, if you look at their code of conduct and their terms of service, they just they don't. Like even like like pornographers, whatever you think of them, like they're traditionally pretty staunch First Amendment defenders. They they are big on that whole freedom of speech thing, and even they are like, you know what, this stuff is unacceptable, and and Valve uh, just does does not have that that kind of like you know moral compass of of any sort guiding its decisions because it doesn't value the idea of a moral compass it doesn't think that there should be a a bar like that that you apply because everyone's going to have a different you know draw different lines then they think that kind of that kind of inconsistency is um unforgivable more so than making a game about rape would be and i I just i do want to point out that that was from uh, i found out about that from a dude on twitter i'm not some kind of creepy weirdo that spends all my time online looking at terms of service agreements (laughs) if if valve were a company that i had some faith in as a company that generally made good decisions about what things to curate onto its storefront then i could understand maybe not having very specific clauses about those kinds of things because games like you know films and books and music 
they can approach those subjects in a sensitive way or, you know, a way where they're, you know, examining them for the purpose of, I don't know, making making an actual statement or, you know, any number of other reasons um, that are artful and maybe productive to society. This game is not one of those, very clearly. Um, so, so while, but, and, and I don't, I don't like have any, any faith in Valve to kind of like distinguish along those lines, I guess. Um, which, which in the end kind of puts developers back in the same position they were in before Valve, you know, decided they were, they were going to make this new rule about things being illegal or trolling. Like what is allowed on Steam is still just kind of this arbitrary thing that's up to Valve, except now Valve has decided they mostly don't care except when enough people yell about it, which is a, a terrible rule. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, they that would have stayed up there unless there had been, like, a fracas, basically. Like, at no point, even if someone at Val had, had seen that, like, as long as no one is kind of pointing at it and going, that's bad, you should do something about it, and drawing attention to the fact that they're not doing anything about it. I think Val, they're, they're just quite happy to kind of sit there and ignore it. And I, I think that's really kind of reflected in like how they present themselves publicly overall like they they are i think they they come across as a very like secretive company they don't like to talk to the press um they only put out what they want to put out and they just kind of ignore everything else and then when pressure mounts they will do something but then again like they they don't really engage um in any meaningful way with like their sort of you know, whether it's through the press or through other means, they just kind of put out statements and then they're very closed off in kind of accepting uh, sort of outside influence or kind of any outside opinion whatsoever. It's very, I think it's a very like self, sort of self-centered and self-serving approach as a company as a whole. And I could sort of see how that's done them quite well for so long where, you know, where they are just the dominant force in PC gaming and, they didn't basically they were so big that no one could tell them what to do um and i think they they've got a a couple of really painful lessons to learn especially with what's happening with like digital distribution at the moment where they're going to have to start humbling themselves a little bit and realize that yes they are massive but they sometimes have to accept that people are gonna tell them what to do um this is one of the frustrating things uh about this for me because like I, I i look at everything that valve has has done in the last few years and there's been so much of it so much tolerance for you know white supremacists and nazis on their on their site so so much tolerance for really you know just the the worst games from promoting sort of the worst elements of humanity and I wonder, like, what is it going to take for people to actually, you know, just stop doing business with this company to delete their Steam accounts, to not give them any more money? And, like, whenever I, I say that on Twitter or in an editorial or something, I get a bunch of people saying, like, I have thousands and thousands of dollars invested in my Steam account now. Like, if I delete it, I am basically getting rid of my gaming past for the last you know 10 12 years and it's it's because they've been locked into this ecosystem uh that is has been practically a monopoly in in the pc space for for so long that they the cost of walking away 
for them is just too high. And I think this is one of the reasons why we get so many people saying like, oh, it's a slippery slope to censorship. Because for these people, it seems like Steam's hold on their gaming life is so thorough and so tight that the idea of deleting their Steam account is a non-starter. Like no matter what Steam does, they they don't feel like they have a choice. And, and when you don't feel like you have a choice, you know, at that point, like the censorship parallel sort of maybe feels more appropriate because, you know, like we're, we're actually the concern with censorship is government censorship, right? That you legally won't be able to do something or that if you do it, you know, you don't really have a choice to do it because the government punishes you, throws you in jail, whatever. And so we get all these arguments that are like a slippery slope to censorship. And, I look at it and it just kind of frustrates me because like, what if, what if instead this is a slippery slope to a healthy and reputable industry instead of an embarrassing trash fire for degenerates? Because like this happens so often and it's so mortifying, like just to tell, to tell people that aren't in the industry, like, Oh, I write about video games. Like the reaction that I get from them is like 50, 50, Oh, that is really cool. And 50-50, oh, that's interesting. What do you think about, you know, and it could be Grand Theft Auto or it could be I heard about this really awful game. And like that, you know, I'm 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 fine with with Grand Theft Auto and I'm fine with kind of the the normal AAA brain dead stuff because every creative medium has the stupid fun triple a brain dead stuff but what steam is doing as as kind of a de facto representative of the industry as the pc digital distribution monopoly almost um it's is they have such a responsibility for the reputation of the industry and so little interest in not not even living up to it, but in acknowledging that it has any obligation to the medium as a whole. I do think there was the smallest, maybe potential kind of silver lining on the story. Um, it, it, it Valve's phrasing on it saying that significant fact finding discussion it poses unknown costs and risks and therefore won't be on Steam. And uh, Brennan, you mentioned earlier that this could involve something like other other publishers, you know, not wanting their games to be on the same storefront. It does kind of make me wonder, you know, per our conversation last week, you know, talking about how people should, you know, like like platform holders should go talk to THQ Nordic and be like, what are you doing? In this case, it makes me wonder if anybody approached Steam like any other uh, p- publishers or anybody else with significant power, like financial power, and said, what is this? Why are you allowing this on your platform? I, I mean, I don't know that for sure. But I just I kind of wonder if there was some sort of pressure from the industry, from any part of the industry, if somebody with some power said, no, you know, this actually isn't OK. And I I don't want to be hopeful on that front because it's such a huge maybe. But I don't know. I, I, I do kind of hope that somebody called up Valve and said, what the heck are you doing? This is your gaming industry fanfic right oh, now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. Like no, nah, and and that's I'm I've done the same thing, <laughs> you know. I'm I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that this was finally like a a point at which 
some of the major players would would decide like whoa no we actually no this isn't we can't be associated with that we need to draw a line somewhere um they also uh, now have another option like they could take their stuff to epic now it's not just steam um so so even if epic isn't quite big enough to really challenge them yet you know there there are other options now that could possibly be viable so if if valve screws up enough you know there there's a place people could have an exodus to the thing the thing here is that uh tim sweeney i think has has indicated that they you know don't really want to apply any kind of content filtering on you know uh of this sort on the epic game store either so let's hope that they realize this is a uh, differentiating factor that they can sell themselves to publishers on instead of saying like yeah this is great we're gonna open the floodgates oh and here comes the rape day games come on in boys that note we don't i don't really want to leave things quite so doom and gloom so let's conclude by talking about nintendo's announcement the other day that they are releasing a new nintendo labo kit that includes vr goggles um it's the fourth kit in their labo series this one comes with a do-it-yourself like five little do-it-yourself cardboard creations that pair with the Nintendo Labo software. And then a sixth one that is VR goggles that then work with the other ones to play little games. Like there's there's a little blaster gun and then you put the VR goggles on and you can like blast space aliens or something. So this is Nintendo doing VR, I guess. You mean like <laughs> again? <laughs> yeah i guess so um it's it's attempt number two after what was it the the virtual boy oh yeah the virtual boy <laughs> um this this seems i mean i it doesn't come out until april we we haven't seen it you know in practice yet but i, I have questions um i I don't have kids, so I don't think about these things very often, but I was under the impression that VR wasn't something you gave small children, like what the Labo is marketed to. It seems maybe questionable to kind of shove a Nintendo Switch right up in front of their eyes. I, I mean, I don't know. That's that's one criticism I've seen. Um, another one that I think is weird is it, it, it. there's no, like, head strap or anything to hold it on. You just you just hold it and put it in front of your face and play. I don't know. This just seems clunky and uncomfortable and not especially fun. And it also seems like, yeah, it's technically Nintendo doing VR, but I don't know where they're going to, except for, you know, making new little Labo kits that can attach to it. I, they, I feel like they're not really going to go anywhere with this. No, no, they're not. I mean, it is it is a, an iteration on the Virtual Boy because that one, you, you plunked it down on a table and it just stayed there. So now you can it's light enough that you can hold it and look around with it. Um for for the for the kids uh eyesight thing, I I guess the assumption is that these these games are such lightweight experiences that like no pun intended there. Um that that people are going to spend, you know, 2 minutes fooling with them and then on to the next thing. Uh yeah, this this I'm not sure that Nintendo's got a lot of faith in this, and I'm kind of surprised that they are actually going to ship it. Like, they, they're announcing it a month ahead of launch like this seems kind of sudden. Um, 
And I, my impression of the Labo uh, push to this point has not been that it's been overwhelmingly successful. They also so... announced it at like 8 p.m. Eastern on a Wednesday night. What's up with that? <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know. That's a weird time to have announcements. I, I don't know. <laughs> I was I was getting ready to like chill for the day and oh, Nintendo's doing VR now <laughs> again. Yeah, that's that's this does not seem like they have very high expectations of it. And neither do I. No, it's just I Nintendo has always kind of, you know, marched to the beat of its own drum, you know, in in various ways. The Nintendo Switch is nothing like the PS4 or the Xbox One or whatever's coming next generation, you know. They they had their weird Wii U time. You know, they're they're always doing things that we look at and go, that's a little weird. And then my impression is those th- those things are a little weird. They they're either a, a big hit or just a huge miss. Um, I mean, the Wii the Wii U Switch comparison is a really good one. The Virtual Boy was a huge miss. Um, you know, things like that. Like they they either do really well or they they don't. And the Labo so far, like it's cool in some ways. Like, I mean, I think I think kind of the idea of like like kids like those kinds of kits. I mean, they're kind of expensive for what they are. But it just yeah, it hasn't it hasn't really blown up or caught on or you know it's got a small little audience and then that's about it and i i don't this vr thing is interesting but aside from it being a curiosity i don't see people spending more time with this than they spent with like one two switch i think with this it's um like the thing i appreciate about the labo even though i haven't played with it or anything like that um i've i've seen a lot of labo kits sat in the corners of like friends houses like untouched for months which i get is kind of the the impression i get from a lot of people with how they've kind of found labo is like this is great for 10 minutes if you're an adult um but the thing i do like is like they are at least like nintendo aren't afraid to try i guess is what i'm saying you know they have a bit of a mad hat idea and they at least they at least give it i guess kind of the airtime they think it needs to experiment with it and see where it goes i i have much less faith in the vr than previous Labo kits. I'm not really sure. I mean, but I'm, I'm very cynical about VR anyway and have, like, no time for it, really. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't... This, Like you say, the, the, the weird announcement time and stuff like that, it, does, it feels like maybe they don't have a huge amount of faith in it, but they've got to the point where, like, they've done it and so they might as well release it. So my last question for you guys, they now seem to have some sort of technological ability to make the switch do something that resembles vr do you think they upscale and translate this technology into a more a a less cardboard and more proper vr experience sometime down the line nope (laughs) i i I think um i suspect that they probably had developers prototyping vr stuff in in you know both kind of labo minigame things and and more traditional sort of experiences and i'm guessing what we're seeing now with the labo is just that those more traditional game experiences the kind of things that would prompt nintendo to to kind of get into vr more properly with you know like a headset that actually straps onto your head um those things probably didn't pan out and uh i would i would expect that that this is it and i think across the industry i i think kind of vr has um 
the the excitement around it has kind of retreated back to that okay so it's it's a niche thing again now and maybe we can take another shot with it when the technology is better um but like the experiences that have been made in the last few years i i don't think that they have been compelling enough on the whole for for people to really jump on board in a mass market kind of way all right on that note that is all the time we have for this week we will be back next week with more of the latest industry news Um, in the meantime you can find our previous episodes on spotify itunes and all good podcasting platforms and you can get your daily dose of news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz until next time